Hey, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, uh, good morning to Amped, Blend, Roan County. Good morning to you out there and down in Bearden. Good morning to you as well. I'm Dave. And I'm Tim. It feels hey, like tag yeah, team yeah. now. Yeah. We're here to pump you up. Yeah, I'm yeah, Tim. Yeah, hey, yeah. everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, as we get started, we're in the middle of a series that we're calling Confidence. And uh, Mark kicked us off the first week talking about one of our core values of being a people who are dependent upon the word of God. It's kind of uh, we, he said uh, the assumed value, like we just assume that, that everybody knows what the Bible is when in fact, does everybody know what the Bible is? We don't always know that. We don't always know. <laughs> yeah. In fact, we had to do a lot of work for this series. Yeah. Did you have to do a lot of work? Yeah, maybe more than any, I mean, just yeah. in terms of like, I started back in December trying to get ready for yeah, for one week, right? For one week yeah. in the middle of January. Yeah, yeah. I spent a couple months getting ready for one week. Yeah. So just in case you think everything that we're talking about is stuff that you should know or that everybody knows, it's not the case. And so as we walk away, some of you also maybe you're feeling like, wow, you're supposed to build my confidence. My confidence is lower than, <laughs> than ever. I, I want to encourage you. Uh, that's awesome. Because uh, maybe you're asking questions that you never asked. And, and we want to encourage you, get answers. And there's answers we'll talk about next steps in that. So we're going to jump in. What we're going to do today is we're just going to start riffing a little bit. But before we do, I want Tim to talk about uh, one of our other core values. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things we do as we follow Jesus together is um, we serve. You know, we, that's, that's like an essential part of what we do as followers of Christ. Um, we're, we're people who are relationally connected to each other and relationally connected to God. And we want to, as, as gospel-centered people, we want to sh- um, tell and show the good news of Jesus to the world around us. So one of the ways, one of the things we do is we do Serve Saturday. We only do it three times a year. It's next Saturday. It's coming up fast. You have one last chance to sign up. And I would just say, look, there are very few things that we say everybody should do. Um, like everybody in our church, we're all going to do this together. There are lots of things like we'll say, hey, pray, maybe this is something you should be involved in. This one, we're saying, let's all do it. We just do it three times a year. It's very easy. Scan that QR code or just go to 2rc.tv slash serve Saturday. You can get there. Um, but do it today and so, uh, sign up to serve alongside um, uh, family, friends, small group, just people you go to church with but you don't know yet. And as you do that, I'm telling you, if you'll, if you'll, if you'll step in and do that, God will use that to change you and he'll, he'll make an impact in you and he'll make an impact in the place where you're serving. So just trust that he'll do that and step in, sign up, and we'll serve together on Saturday. Good? Okay, good. Let's do All right. It. All right. Uh, yeah. As we jump in, uh, during this series, you've had a chance to answer some questions, and I mean to ask some questions, and we're going to give you responses this weekend. But before we do, we want to talk about something really foundational. Ultimately, we, be, we do believe that the Bible is God's story, and God's story is all about the life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus. That's what this is all about. 66 books, we believe, that are all about pointing towards the final culmination of all things, the pinnacle of God's story revealed in the life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus. So in this series, we're just going to hit a little bit of review because we talked about three key concepts, inspiration, authority, and inerrancy. And we told you that we would talk about inerrancy today, and we will. So two weeks ago, I talked about God using people in process under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give us scripture. And in particular, that week, we were talking about uh, the Old Testament. 
And it's same is true for the New Testament. But in particular, we, we talked about what might be called the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, that, that God used people in process over a long span of time to give us the scripture that he intended for us to have, and that it is a divine human partnership that, that created the scriptures just the way God intended for us to have them. And then last week, Tim. Yeah, last week we were talking, we were focused on the, the Greek New Testament where it came from, what it is, uh, why that matters. And, but we also focused on the topic of the idea, the concept of authority. And the thing we saw was the authority of Scripture rests on Jesus, okay? So um, you can go back. You can, if you missed that, you can listen to that message. What you'll hear, though, is that bottom line, um, the Old Testament, the reason it's authoritative in our life is because it was, Jesus viewed it that way. He treated it that way. The, old, the Hebrew scriptures were his scriptures. That's what he studied. That's what he taught from. Um, and, and then the New Testament, Jesus didn't read that because it hadn't been written yet. He didn't teach from it. He was teaching it. The New Testament has authority because it came from the people who he commissioned, who he, who he called and sent out to share, to tell, to write the good news um, that Jesus, the message of Jesus, that he came to, to live and to share, he, they were the ones that he sent to carry it out to us. And so that, the authority of the New Testament scriptures comes from Jesus because he sent that message to us uh, through them. So that's kind of where we've been. This week, uh, we're, we're answering, as Dave said, some of the questions that you all submitted. And some of those questions do get at this idea of inerrancy. So we'll just start there because it's the third of those three um, key concepts. What is inerrancy? What do we mean by that? People say the Bible is inerrant or without error. And um, for some people, that means a very simple thing. Okay, that means there's, there's, just, there's no mistakes in it. Okay, okay, that's one way to think of it. But it actually is more complicated than that because you might be reading the Bible. Many people read the Bible and go, well, there's something in here. This, this seems like a mistake. I, I don't think this... This, I don't think this is accurate. It happens a lot. And a couple of things about that. Well, first of all, our statement of faith at our church, when it speaks about this concept, the way it puts it, it says this, the Bible, we believe the Bible is without error in the original writings. So two important things there. One is in the original writings. I mentioned last week, we don't have the originals. We have copies of copies. They're very good. They're very accurate. We have lots of them thousands of them so we can cross-reference and go, do these line up? Do they match? Is there an error somewhere in here? But we've, and there are mistakes. There are errors in copying. So we say without error in the original writings. Um, the other thing is, uh, what's an error? <laughs> what, we say they're without error. Well, what's an error? What, what do we mean by an error? And that might sound like, well, you're getting into like, you know, Semantics. Yeah, yeah, semantics. Like, well, you're just going to talk around a mistake that's in the Bible. <laughs> but actually, this matters. Um, here's how we think about it. Without error is one way, sort of in the negative sense, doesn't have errors. Here's another way. By faith, we believe the Holy Spirit confirms the truthfulness of Scripture. So you look at what God says in his word about what Scripture is, you'll see that God is saying it's truthful. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a helpful way to think about it. Is, is Scripture true? Is it, tr- is, it, is it truthful all the time? Yes, it is. Um, we're not, we're, it's, it's not like a, uh, it's a new thing to go, well, what do you mean by an error? If you go back to the, to the late 70s, a group of evangelical scholars came together. Way back in, in the late 70s, for some of you, that's ancient history. For some of us, it's not that long ago. Um, and they put together... Tim, what's, no, really. <laughs> 
How old were you in the late 70s? In 1978? Yeah. I was three years old. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Just call it what it is. I that wasn't is. reading the Chicago <laughs> Statement on Inerrancy in 1978. I don't think I read it until this year, but... but yeah. <laughs> I, 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 our faith is built upon the Chicago Statement of Faith, and I read it for this series. <laughs> right, exactly. Here's what they say about this error, about this idea of what, what is an error. Uh, it's theological terms, but just, just stick with me. We deny that it is proper to evaluate Scripture according to standards of truth and error that are alien to its usage and purpose. It doesn't make sense to evaluate Scripture that doesn't, in a way that doesn't line up with its purpose. We further deny that inerrancy is negated by biblical phenomena such as a lack of modern technical precision, irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature, the reporting of falsehoods, the use of hyperbole and round numbers, the topical arrangement of material, variant selections of material and parallel accounts, or the use of free citations. So why, why aren't those errors? If, if Scripture tells the story one way and then it tells it a little bit different in another way, why isn't that an error? Or the numbers don't seem exactly right. Why wouldn't we consider those errors? Um, our statement of faith also says that the Bible is, this is what it says, to be believed in all that it teaches. So we would say that the Scripture is truthful um, and in completely accurate in all that it teaches. But sometimes we think Scripture must be trying to teach us something that it's actually not intending to try and teach us. Again, this is not semantics or, or just trying to slide around something in Scripture. Um, the Bible just isn't, sometimes as 21st century readers, we think it's trying to tell us something that it's actually not trying to tell us. Uh, a helpful illustration for me is this. Um, when you read a map, you have to know what kind of map you're reading. Otherwise, it won't help you. It won't get you to where you're going. So, for example, uh, a map of the London Underground or really a subway map of any major city, they all have this same kind of look to them. Now, that map will help you find your way on the London Underground. You get in the tube, you mind the gap, this is going to help you get to where you're going. <laughs> but if you use this as a map for walking around London, you're going to walk to the stations, this is going to start to cause some problems. Because like you look at one of those lines, the district line, it's this green line up there, and it looks like it runs in a straight line, direct, east and west. If you walked directly west down that uh, from one station, you will not run into the next station because actually they move north and south a little bit. They're on a different street here. The streets turn a little bit. Uh, it won't help you as a, as a walking map. It's a map for finding your way on the subway. The guy who made this map in 1931, he redesigned the map of the London Underground, and he decided, I'm going to do it differently. I'm, I know that what people need to know is not how to walk from station to station. They need to know how to ride the subway from station to station. So what it's going to highlight is clarity about the order of the stations, about when you ride it, what will come next, what will come after that. So that's the way he drew, he drew the map. Um, it had a very particular purpose. Now, you could look at it and go, well, that's not exactly where those stations lie in geographic reality. So is the map true or is it false? 
It's true. It's exactly true in what it's trying to communicate. There are some things it's not trying to communicate. It's not worried about accuracy there. Those stations that look like they're equidistant apart, they're actually, some are closer together and some are further apart. But that's not what the map is trying to tell us. Scripture often does that. It's trying to tell us something, and it is completely true and accurate in the thing that it's trying to communicate. But sometimes it's not trying to communicate what we think it's trying to communicate. Some of these are really obvious. Psalm 104 says... He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Speaking of God, he set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Now, a 21st century person might go, oh, what that's saying is the planet earth never moves. That's an error because we know the planet earth is in constant motion. Read the psalm. That is not what it's trying to teach. It starts off telling you what it's trying to teach, that God is great. That's the truth it's communicating. God is great. So one of the ways that the psalmist does that, he says, look at the world. God made it all. He made everything. He made the planet. Nobody else can do that. Nobody can touch it. It's not trying to say, how does our solar system work? It's trying to say who God is and how great he is. And so you can see that pretty easily from the context of that. Sometimes it's more complicated. Sometimes it takes a little bit of homework or a lot of homework to try and understand, well, what's the scripture trying to teach right there? Um, and that's the work that we have to do. We need to understand what the author is, is trying to communicate. I think, I think uh, as we went through the book of Exodus, mm-hmm. back when we went to the book of Exodus, Tim and I had a lot of conversations about the idea that the numbers in the book of Exodus are, are used different than you would use numbers. For us, in order for a story to be true, the number has to be exact and accurate. But the problem is that doesn't even exist in our world. That doesn't even exist. And so now when you cut across a, a span of culture and time and you enter into a culture where, where it's an argument against other stories where they're common to use hyperbolic numbers in storytelling. And so when they round numbers or use hyperbolic numbers, they exaggerate numbers, you say, that's not true. And the, the problem with that is it's absolutely true for the purpose that the author is telling the story. So just because uh, one person may say, I believe there were more than 600,000 Israelites in the Exodus, because the Bible says it, and somebody might say those numbers were hyperbolic, it was either 60,000, and in some of the battles, the numbers are adjusted, that would be normal, normal storytelling in the days in which the Bible was written. And for us, we would say, there's an heir, but there's no heir. It's the way the Bible was written, and it indicates that our God is amazing. The story that they're telling is our God is better than your God. True story. True story. True story, but the number is not the point of the story. Not the point. So one of the things that that leads into is, and this where there was a lot of questions around this, why are there different books considered scripture in different faith traditions? Depending on the faith tradition that you came out of, there's different books that you would say, well, the Protestant Bible, uh, the different Bibles they acknowledged. The last two weeks we went through the uh, what is the Bible video from the Bible Project, and they brought this up. Like, okay, well, wait a minute. This faith tradition has this, and this faith tradition has that, and uh, the Protestant faith tradition has another uh, scripture. So which is right? Well, here's the issue. You have to understand the bigger picture of what happened. And so we talked about two weeks ago that there's uh, the first Greek translation of the Bible is, uh, of the Old Testament was called the Septuagint. 
And that was the Old Testament of the church when the church began. And as if you know a little bit about church history, when we say the church began, today that legacy would be the Catholic church. That's the church, okay? So when we talk about the church, but, but you can't think of it that way either because it was before there were popes and stuff. It's just the church. It's just the people of God. And what they used was this Greek Old Testament. And then in about 400, um, we use round numbers, 400, doesn't mean it's not true, 400, <laughs> 400-ish AD, a guy by the name of Jerome, he takes the scriptures and he puts it into Latin because Latin is the language of the day. And so um, what emerged is taking this thing called the Greek Old Testament and converting it into Latin, and that became the, the Latin Vulgate, you may have heard of that, and that became the Bible translation for the church for a really long time. Even after people stopped speaking Latin, the church continued to hold worship services in Latin because the scriptures were in Latin. And in the process, some people would say, Jerome was forced to include all the books of the Septuagint in the Latin Vulgate, even though maybe he personally just wanted to translate the books that were in Hebrew and the books that were in Greek, what we would call the Hebrew Old Testament, Old Testament, we call it the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the Greek New Testament, we just call it the New Testament. Maybe in his view, those were the scriptures, but he translated them all, and that became the scriptures. But there was never a vote on it. They never got together and said, these are officially scriptures. And so here's the way that the argument gets framed. If, you're, if you are uh, from a, a tradition, if you're Catholic, where those books are included, if you come out of that faith tradition... Um, they would argue it this way. They would say that Protestants deleted books from the Bible. You took scripture, deleted it, you took them out of scripture, and so that's, that's a terrible thing. As a Protestant, here's the way that, that you would frame the, the issue. You would say, no, the Catholics actually added books to the Bible because it wasn't until the, the late 1500s at something called the Council of Trent that you voted officially, there, and there wasn't a council. We have this idea when it comes to ancient councils, like they just got together, had a meeting, they said that scripture. That, this happened over years. In at least 12 different meetings over a long span of time, they got together, and the result was they officially came out with what, what exists as scripture. And it was in response to the Reformation, the reformers who, who are now known as Protestants coming out and saying, it's just the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament. And so that's, that's the origin of, of why, uh, why your Bible has a Hebrew Old Testament, a Greek New Testament, is because out of that Reformation, uh, Protestants said, we want the Hebrew scriptures and we want the Greek scriptures, and here's, here's where we fall short. We think those books in between, those books that were written in the period between um, the, the Hebrew books of the Old Testament and the, the, the Greek New Testament, those letters that were written in that year between, in the years between 400 BC-ish and uh, the, the days in which Jesus lived, those books, we could call them the books in the middle, we think those books are relevant, but they're absolutely relevant. In fact, we avoid reading them. Should I read that? The common question. Well, what about those books? It, it, should I read them? And I would encourage you, maybe read them. Sure. Yeah. 
Not, they're not scripture. They're not scripture. We, yeah, it's, not, it's not the same as, as reading the New Testament. But even in the um, uh, early church, 200s AD, there, there were copies of, um, of, the, of the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek New Testament. And by people who viewed those as scripture and these, the books in the, in the middle not as scripture, but they still included them in the same bound book, the same codex, because they said, well, these are valuable. They're just not, the, they're not on the same level as, they're not God's word, they're not scripture, but they're still valuable. So they bound them together with what we would call the Bible. Yeah. yeah. And, and the reason it might be helpful for us to read them is the authors of your New Testament had them and knew what they said. The mindset of the New Testament authors included the books in the middle. And, and I want to remind you, nothing we're talking about in this series is scandalous, uh, problematic, or shocking, even if it seems that way, okay? It may seem that way. This is all orthodox. This is all straight, normal stuff. It's just stuff we don't normal talk, normally talk about. Right. And so... Well, that leads us to the, the next question, Tim. Yeah, so we got a couple of questions around the idea of like, well, okay, if this is God's word and he wants to communicate to us clearly, why do people interpret the Bible differently? Like why, do, why, do, why do people disagree? And so churches split and they have different views and different denominations get started over different theological views. And um, why does it happen? Well, here's, here's what I would say. Um, scripture, God's word, is meant to be understandable for us. And it is understandable, but it still takes work. And so one of the things is everything in the Bible has to be interpreted. It's not a, uh, it's not a problem with the Bible that it has to be interpreted. It's just, it's just the reality, the nature of it. Like if you go back, like for us, the, the scriptures are ancient. They're from so long ago, from another culture. They're so far back. You go, okay, well, so they've got to be interpreted. They have to be translated into another language, and then you've got to interpret it, and you've got to try and understand all these things. It's hard to figure out. Even for ancient readers of the scriptures, this was true. They had to be interpreted. If you read in Ezra, you'll see that, that Ezra says what he needs to do, what he needed to do was to study scripture, to do it, to teach it. He needed to do all three. He didn't just need to read the scriptures and go, Bible says what it says. Get to work, everybody. No, he needed to study it himself first. Then he needed to put it in action. And then he needed to teach it to, um, to his people. And we have to do the same thing. We have to interpret it. We have to, it's simple enough for the common person to understand, but everybody has to engage their mind. We have to ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate uh, the scriptures for us. And it takes work, even with simple things. Like um, you read the, the Ten Commandments. Well, you read it in the King James Version. It'll say, do not kill. Does that mean you can never cause a life to end in any circumstance that can never happen it's a well if you read most modern translations they say do not murder well in english murder and kill have different meanings but we have other words like manslaughter and homicide you know like so which what's it talking about there it requires even something that seems so simple and straightforward requires some interpretation and so people come up with um with different inter different interpretations it does not mean that every interpretation is correct absolutely there are lots of bad interpretations of scripture and it doesn't mean that there's not one meaning but it takes work to find that meaning. It, and it's also why we use method mm -hmm. it's why that we use a method of interpretation 
uh, I won't use the big name for it, but it, it, it's why we have a system for the way that we approach scriptures, that it isn't just, hey, what does this mean to you and what do you think that means? That's the way we approach modern day literature because your opinion matters, right? Your opinion matters. What do you think Moby Dick is about? Like, you can take a literature class that's all just theory of what you think. And that is not true about the scriptures. And so just because somebody interprets something a certain way, that doesn't mean it's correct. And so we actually have a very systemized approach to being able to understand what's a way that we understand what the text means. Because we believe while the the Bible um, can be interpreted in different ways, it only has one meaning. And that's the meaning that the original author of the text meant. And so a related question we got is, how do, you, how do we distinguish between a promise or message that was for the original audience and what is for followers of Jesus today? Um, and what I would say is, all of it is meant for the original audience, but all of it has meaning for followers of Jesus today. And what we have to do is understand the context. And sometimes you go like, well, what are the things that, that, are, that don't have to be contextualized? They're just true. The reality is everything in the Bible has to be contextualized. Everything does. Uh, again, that might seem like, well, not everything. There are some things that are obvious. Like some, some people might say, well, look, uh, it says in, um, it's, it teaches very clearly in Corinthians. The early churches, Paul told them, and not just their church, but other churches, to take up an offering every week. 1 Corinthians 16 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so you also are to do. So it's not just your church, it's the other churches too. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Paul's writing a letter. He says, hey, take up a collection every week. This is how you should do it. So that's what we do. We just obey the scripture. We don't have to contextualize it. Well, we do. Because if we didn't contextualize it, then what we would do is we would take a collection every week and then we would send it to the saints in Jerusalem. That's what that collection was for. And we don't send it to Jerusalem. Why don't we send it to Jerusalem? Because we're contextualizing the, the, the scriptures. That's what has to be done. And we have to do that with everything in there. Now, again, um, that means we need to understand the context of the original readers. What was their world like? But we also have to understand the context of God's story. Where does this part of scripture fit into the big story of what God is telling and doing? Both of those things help us understand what the meaning is. Yeah, and, and that led to the next group of questions, really, that talked about uh, did the biblical authors use uh, source text as they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Did they use other materials that were around? They, did they use other stories? Um, maybe you've heard that, that there were other accounts of creation that existed before the Hebrew account of creation. And so how do we, did the, did the, the authors of the Hebrew Bible, did they just copy from other creation accounts that already existed. This seems scandalous. They couldn't possibly have used another text. Could they have used another my, text? My freshman year of college, I, I was in a class and I started hearing about these other flood narratives from other ancient Near Eastern cultures. And there were major similarities. I was, and it was kind of like, well, wait, so did, the, did, the, did Moses rip off these other stories and just make his own version? Right. And so what, what ends up happening is if you, if you want to be scandalized and not believe the Bible's true, authoritative, inerrant, it, you're going to find a reason. If you want to find a reason, 
you're going to find it, okay? I want to just confirm it. If you want to go and you don't want to believe the Bible's true, you don't want to believe Jesus, and you just want to not believe it, you'll find a reason because it's just the nature of our hearts. We're rebellious people, man. I don't want to put myself under anybody's authority, and so if I want to find something for a reason not to believe, I'm going to find it. And so this, this doesn't... This doesn't make me uh, encounter a faith crisis because there may be other accounts of the flood or other accounts of creation when I understand the context. And when I understand the context as that, that much of the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament is built as an argument that the God of the uh, children of, of Israel, we know his name as Yahweh, the God of the Bible, that... that he is the God who created all the other gods. And so the way that the creation story is told is actually an argument against the other creation accounts and saying, our God created your gods. And we reduced it to, God just wanted to know that he created the world in seven days. No, not the point of the story at all. It's an argument that the God of the scriptures, the Hebrew God, Yahweh, is the one real God. Now, does the, do the other gods exist? And you were through the series with us through Exodus where we talked about spiritual beings. And every time in the Old Testament that the word God is used, it's this word Elohim. If you have questions, go on the Bible Project, type in spiritual beings, watch that series. That, that the only way in the Bible that it... That, it, it distinguishes between what the translator puts a big G God and the little G God is through context. So every time that word is used, it's talking about spiritual beings. Who are spiritual beings? Every spiritual being, being that exists, including the disembodied dead people. But we don't talk about that. Okay. With that. But were the, there source texts? That's what yeah, we want to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So were there source texts? Yes. And there are arguments that are built upon um, interacting with the culture in which the Hebrew Bible was written. Now, it, we wouldn't say that, it, that an author of a book who quotes another book made a mistake, that that's an error, unless they don't cite it, then they're plagiarists. But in this case, we actually even see that, that the authors of Scripture, we should believe them, right? We believe the Bible. We should believe the authors of Scripture. And Luke just tells us, I used other stuff. He's quoting sources when he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as though who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. He's telling you, I've compiled the stories. I've brought them together, and now I've ordered them in a particular way. And he tells you the point of his accounting for the gospel in the very opening. This is why I've done it. Now, the Old Testament authors, fascinating. I, before this series, I didn't even really, I wouldn't even been able to tell you this. So if you don't know this, me either. But this is fascinating that there's at least 47 different references in the Old Testament to books that we have no idea where they are, what they are. They just talk to them like they're normal. 
And it's examples like in uh, Joshua and Samuel where they reference a book like the book of Jasher. They actually are referencing the same book. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, it says, And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. What? He just quoted a source. He just quoted a source. And then he goes on to write about it. Uh, same is true in the book of Chronicles is filled with these. And, and one example, just one example from 2 Chronicles chapter 9. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon from first to last, are they not written in the history of Nathan the prophet and in the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite and in the visions of Edo the seer concerning Jeroboam the son of Nebat? He's just like sourcing it right there. Like boom, 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 boom. So yes, they absolutely, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, use source material. This is going to be a big deal because the New Testament authors did the same. They quote sources, and we would expect them to because they often are quoting the Old Testament or maybe even, scandal, the books in between. And we'll talk about that in the next series. So Tim. Um, yeah, so that another question we got kind of related to... Uh, to what was it like to live in that, um, in that ancient world was what would, what would have been access to the scriptures for people throughout history? Kind of the idea of like, we have access to the Bible all the time. And we say, well, read, read the scriptures every day. And well, could somebody have done that in ancient Israel, um, ancient, uh, in the ancient Roman world? Would people have been able to read the Bible every day? Uh, we don't know exactly. I'll try and make this one quick. Uh, there's lots of you know, nobody knows the literacy rate of the ancient world. I mean, you'll hear things from 1% to 20% uh, literate. Okay, somewhere in there, we don't it's know. It's still small. Yes, it's small. Um, what we do know is the primary access that people in ancient Israel or, or in the first century world, the primary access they would have had to the, uh, to the scriptures were gathering together, communal reading of the scriptures. Um, you get a little glimpse of it, of it in a couple places in Acts. In Acts 13, in Pisidian Antioch, Paul and his companions go into the local synagogue, and it says, on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers invite Paul to come up. The rulers in the synagogue invite them to come up to speak. There was always this reading of the law and the prophets. They would, in the synagogue, on the Sabbath day, once a week, have a reading of the Torah and something from the prophets. So a selection of both of those. You saw Jesus last week. We looked at him in the synagogue in Nazareth. They were reading scripture. They hand him the scroll from the prophets, from, from Isaiah. And he opened it up and, and read it. That was the normal thing for them to do, to read it communally and then discuss it as a community. It doesn't mean they didn't have any other access. It's true. It, you know, it wouldn't be normal for a normal person to have a copy of the scrolls or of the Greek New Testament just, just laying around their house in those early um, periods. That wouldn't be normal, but uh, you know, you even see in um, in uh, in the Exodus already, the Israelites are getting instructions to write these commands on their their doorposts, on their door frames. So they would have ways of encountering parts of Scripture day by day. The Old Testament is so often written in ways to make it easy to remember the story, to memorize it. It's intentional. You can see it's written that way to make the story easy to remember. So they would encounter it daily in their minds. Um, but there were also ways they could go and study the Scriptures together. In Acts, the Bereans are famous for studying the Scriptures daily, it says. It says Paul 
and his companions were teaching to them, and they daily searched the scriptures to find out if what Paul was saying lined, aligned with the, the Hebrew scriptures. It wasn't because they had copies of the scriptures in their homes, but they would go to the synagogue daily and say, we got to check the scrolls. So they made an effort to do that. Bottom line is, we have more access than they did. We should be grateful for that. We should take advantage of it. And we should study the scriptures as we can on our own, but we shouldn't give up. And because we have our own copies on our phones, on our shelf, we shouldn't then say, oh, I don't need to study scripture with others. We still need to do that. We gather every week to do it just as they did. That's what we do here. You do it in your small group. You do it with your friends. You have conversation with your family. You study scripture both ways. Yeah. yeah. It's also a reason we do uh, live it out together, right? I mean, as yeah. we do live it out together, as we've been praying, hopefully you've joined in and praying Psalm 119 this month. It's something that we do get together individually. And it sounds weird, but it gives us a a source text to talk about as, as we go through our day. And that, this was, a, was just one question that came in. I thought it was awesome. Uh, why does Psalm 119 have Hebrew alphabet headings? Why do they put the heading in the text? And the answer is because the Hebrew Bible has the letter in the margin. And so that's the answer. And then it was, are there other places where that exists? There's not other places in the Psalms where that exists, although there are other acrostic poems. Just means that each successive line begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And Psalm 119 is unique in the sense of that um, every stanza began with the same letter, 22 stanzas. It is uh, one of the most, I think, one of the most amazing literary works I've ever seen. So one of the questions that came in was, why do we use the ESV at Two Rivers Church? We had, and we had a lot of questions about just Bible translations in yep. general, different types of Bibles, that kind of thing. Yeah. Tim, why do we use the ESV here? Uh, <laughs> I don't... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We've been using it since before I came. <laughs> and we've been using it since before I came. So uh, that's at least 12 years ago that we've been using the ESV. And I can't tell you why we originally started using the ESV, but I can tell you why we continue to use the ESV. And that is because it is a, a great version to study from, mm -hmm. and it's a great version to teach from. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a great version for your personal devotional Bible reading. And we'll talk a, a little bit about that. That, that um, you, you shouldn't get married. There's gonna, some of you are going to make, you shouldn't get married to one translation of the Bible. Okay? Unless uh, you speak Hebrew or Greek. Okay, if you read Hebrew and Greek, get married to that thing, right? But, but for the rest of us who have to see a translation, we, we should be able to say, what's the intent of the translation? And for us, when, if you're going to teach the Bible, having what people might call a more word-for-word -word translation, it's not, because that's not a thing, okay? It's not a thing to have a word-for-word -word translation, but it's the best way that we can understand that it's closer to a word-for-word -word translation than a thought-for-thought -thought translation. Is one better than the other? And the answer is, it depends what we want to use it for. And so uh, one of the questions that then came in was, and, it, and it's also connected to uh, people who maybe have used the King James Version for their whole life. It's a great crossover to a modern translation that holds on to some of the tradition of the past and the way that things are phrased. And so it's not quite such a major departure uh, for people who are maybe used to um, the King James Version, which is the most popular uh, Bible translation of all time. It's the most produced, and so it's really a great crossover text. But the next question came in was, uh, what Bible translations 
or specialty type Bibles would you recommend? Yeah, like, we use that you, specialty type Bible. What do you read? I mean, let's, you know, you said uh, maybe not ESV is not the best for devotional reading or whatever. What do you what do you like yeah. to read? What do, you, yeah. what, do, what do I like to read? And so um, I think, Tim, you're actually supposed to answer this one first. Okay, I will. Should have rehearsed this, I know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. What do you read? Oh, right. Yeah. Um, well, well, first of all, let's just, what, what, we, what our teaching team, uh, we all use, obviously the ESV, because we teach from the ESV, and we all use the Net Bible yeah. be- because of the, the notes. And they're not study notes, they're translation notes. It's the New, Engli- New English translation, the, the NET, the Net Bible. And every time they have to make, we use it with the with notes version, every time they have to make a translation decision, it's documented. And so there can be massive notes on a page. You may have this much Bible text, and everything else is a note. So. Keep going. It says Dave. Oh, it does. Okay, well, let's keep rolling. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, ESV. You were right, Tim. I was wrong. Uh, <laughs> it was me. Uh, I, I also use the NIV, the CSB. If you're not uh, familiar, it's the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, that's the one that I, right now, as I was going through, as we went through the series in Psalm 23, I prefer their translation of Psalm 23 opposed uh, to the ESV, their full disclosure. I think they nail it in their translation of Psalm 23. And uh, that just led me to reading it more and more. And the last one is Tanakh. Uh, anytime we're teaching from the Old Testament, I'm pulling that thing, and you're like, what is that? That is the, the Hebrew Old Testament translated into English. Uh, it is from the Jewish Publication Society, and in particular, I use the study Bible that they've produced. I use it fairly frequent uh, that I use that. How about you, Tim? Okay, me. Now that uh, we have it in the right order. For study, yeah, ESV and the NET, we've talked about both of those. I also, the NIV, um, it's a good, I, it's like, the, the NLT is the last one on my list. It's kind of, the NIV is kind of in between the ESV and the NLT for me. So I, the, most of the scripture that I um, have memorized is from the NIV. So there's a familiarity for me there. The NLT, the New Living Translation, is very readable. So um, when I'm teaching middle schoolers and high schoolers, I usually teach from the NLT. I'll do my study in the ESV, and then I'll teach from the NLT. Um, uh, when I, if I'm reading big chunks of scripture, whole chapter, multiple chapters, I just find the NLT is, is much more uh, readable than, than the ESV for me. So I like, I like that one. Yeah, and if you have questions about translations, there's some resources on the bottom. There's a couple uh, blog posts that you can link to that will really help walk you through how to choose a Bible translation. And I would encourage you that if you've been stuck in one for a while, or if, this is just personal opinion, if you've been using the same Bible for a long time, Put that thing down. Pick up a fresh copy. There's something that can happen when I don't get stuck in what was there, and I begin to read it with fresh eyes. And so we would encourage you to, to do that. Also, is it the, uh, somebody asked a question about a specialty Bible in particular. There's all kinds of specialty Bibles. You're walking into the bookstore, all kinds of versions, uh, all kinds of special devotional Bibles, yeah. but in particular, what's one that might be yeah, helpful? Yeah, um, Chronological Bible was one somebody asked about. I read that years ago, Had a, bought a specialty Bible, one, read through the Bible in a year chronologically, 
And it was super helpful in just getting, it's, some people go, well, you don't mess with the order of the books, you know, that's, then you, we, we jump around in the Bible all the time. So to actually just sit down and read it chronologically uh, can really help you understand the big story of God as it's told there. Yeah. And it's also study Bibles, people have questions about study Bibles, three that we would recommend, ESV, NIV, uh, Christian Standard Bible, study Bibles, just the one that's called the NIV study Bible, the one that's called the ESV study Bible, the one that's called the Christian Standard uh, Study Bible, Christian Standard Bible, Study Bible. That's a lot of Bible. Uh, <laughs> and that to say, here would be my encouragement. If, if you are going to say, hey, I have an ESV, I read an ESV, I'd encourage you to get a study Bible in a different translation. Okay? And the one that I use the most out of the, I use two of them, really comparable. Not the ESV Study Bible. It's the NIV or the Christian Standard Bible because I'm, I'm, I'm going it has two advantages. What are their study notes saying? And also, what does that translation to say? I get a two for one out of that deal. So in that, um, the, some of the questions had more to do with what does the Bible say about as opposed to what is the Bible? And we will answer those questions. Right? Yes. Yes. But not all today. Right, all but right. not today. Not today. And so we're going to answer those questions. We are going to answer those questions throughout March, and we'll give you a chance. You're like, oh, man, I didn't know I could ask a question about what does the Bible say about. So starting next weekend, we'll give you two weeks to ask questions because then we'll develop answers. And through the Live It Out, through the month of March, there'll be a link that you'll be able to go to if you want to listen in on that. So ultimately, uh, it's important for we would remember that God's story is all about the life, death, resurrection, and the return of Jesus. And that has practical implications to daily life. Yeah, that's why we're, we're studying the scripture to understand who God is, what his story is, to understand who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's doing in us. We got to engage with God's word to do that. It's why we do the live it out day by day. It's in, your, it's in your bulletin. It's available online. Engage with that this week, not just to understand the scriptures, but to understand the God who is revealed in scripture. So that's what we're going to do throughout the week together. We're going to keep going after that. Um, what are we going to do right now, Dave? Yeah, well, uh, one other mention, and in the resources, uh, if, if we've gone through this series and you're like, man, I really need to know more about the way you view the Bible, I want to encourage you, there's a 14-part uh, series from the Bible Project called the Paradigm Series. It'll be super helpful. If your confidence in the scriptures got shaken a little bit and you want to invest a little bit more time, I want to encourage you that you would invest in that Paradigm Series. It will be super helpful for you, and you might even discover the value of the Bible Project as a resource in your life. But in this moment, what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate communion. There's probably no greater gift that we have than a tangible rem reminder of the life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus than, than the tangible reminder of communion. And so um, what we're going to do is I'm going to pray for all of us. And then in all of our venues, uh, your venue pastor is going to come and lead you through communion. So God, we're grateful for, for the, the tangible reminder of the, the life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus as we celebrate this together. Thank you for the gift that it is in Jesus' name. Amen.